0: Let's open the Scriptures to the letter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. It says 9 in the bulletin and on the board, but I'd like to read 8 as well. It's not very long, but it pertains to what we confess in Belgic Confession 25 about how Christ Jesus has fulfilled the law. So we're going to read Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, and just a few verses from the opening of Hebrews 10. So the inspired writer says, Hebrews 8, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant cornered, Are covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I invite you to turn with me in the Belgic Confession to Article 25. you find that in the Book of Praise, page 509. As part of the catechism preaching, we're working our way through the Belgic Confession. And we come to Article 25, where we confess, we believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ceased with the coming of Christ, and that all shadows have been fulfilled, so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet their truth and substance remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. In the meantime, we still use the testimonies taken from the law and the prophets, both to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel and to order our life in all honesty, according to God's will and to His glory. That's as far as our confession goes. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last time, a couple of weeks ago in Article 24, we heard about how the Lord Jesus keeps working in His saved people so that all of us more and more begin to live that new life He calls us to. That new way of living is as much a gift as is the forgiveness of our sins, And it's true that we are consciously involved in receiving both of those gifts. We we need to receive forgiveness by trusting in Christ's sacrifice, and then again we need to put effort forth, put into practice the good works He gives us to do in the new life. But in both instances, it is Christ's prior work in us that gives us the ability to To do them. Both the act of faith and the ongoing daily acts of obedience are God's gift to us. It's His work in us as a gift of Christ our Lord through His Spirit. So these come to us, these two gifts, they come to us freely, they come to us abundantly, and they come to us despite our daily sins and weaknesses. Because the work of Christ, it it constantly washes us again and again and again. That means we may daily accept His offer of forgiveness in faith and also daily push ahead with obedience without being afraid of condemnation, without the burden that in some way... Our standing with God depends on how successful we are with our faith and our obedience. No, as we saw, our standing before God depends on one thing only, on the Lord Jesus Christ and everything He accomplished. Now, the Belgic Confession made all of that quite clear in Articles 22 through 24. And now it goes on in Article 25 to speak about God's law. And there's a, a natural connection. The Heidelberg Catechism has it, too. After speaking about good works and our sanctification in Article, or Lord's Days 32 and 33, the Catechism, you might recall, goes on to speak about the law of God in Lord's Day 34, the Ten Commandments. When we speak about the good works that God commands us to do, When we talk about obeying god's will for our lives we need to know what that will is and god presents that will in the ten commandments the the law of god unveils for us god's will for our lives that's why the catechism spends a fair bit of time in the lord's days explaining each of the commandments but the Belgic has another aspect to the law question in mind because there are other commandments in the law. There are other laws outside of the Ten Commandments, and the question can easily arise, what are we supposed to think of them? What about the laws that we read in Leviticus, the laws of clean and unclean? What about the sacrifices and the feasts which God ordered? What about the worship at the tabernacle and later the temple? What about all the civil punishments for various crimes? All these things God also had commanded through Moses just as He gave the Ten Commandments. So why is it that we obey some still today and others we we do not? Why do babies of believers like little Edmund here no longer have to be circumcised? Should we even bother to learn about circumcision and Passover and the tabernacle service? Or should we just ignore all of that stuff? What do all those things have to do with Christ and being a Christian still today? Well, those are some of the questions we hope to look at as I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme, the law of God leads us to Christ. Christ. The law of God leads us to Christ. We'll see that the law leads us to know Christ, and the law leads us in following Christ. Article 25 opens up with a, a sentence, We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ceased with the coming of Christ, and that all shadows have been fulfilled so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians, well, it talks about shadows, and we're going to come back to those shadows in a few moments. But we first need to understand how the Belgic Confession is using the word "law" in this instance. For in the Bible, the word "law" can mean a few different things. At times, for example, the word "law" refers to the entire Old Testament. Jesus uses it that way in John ten. Sometimes it's used just to refer to the writings of Moses or the five books of Moses. You have that in the expression, the law and the prophets, which Article 25 also picks up in uh, the second part. And at other times, the, the word law can just refer to the Ten Commandments proper, what we sometimes refer to as the moral law. And in still other contexts, it refers to the laws that pertain to the tabernacle and the furnishings and all the various feasts. We call those generally the ceremonial laws, having to do with all the ceremonies of the worship. And when you read through the books of Moses, we find also many laws that were for the government of Israel as a separate people, laws to prevent crimes, laws to keep order among the citizens. We call those the civil law. So, whenever you read the word law in the Bible, you do have to pause and ask yourself, hang on, which which law is being meant here? Well, in our reading of Hebrews 8, which the Belgic draws from… Mostly, the author is referring to the ceremonial law when he speaks about these things called shadows. He uses the word copies. He also uses the word symbols. All of that is a a way of talking about the ceremonial law. Now, just ahead of diving into those shadows, we should ask Does the law given through Moses, and and here I'm thinking of the entire law, the moral, the civil, the ceremonial, does it have any connection to Christ? Some say that Jesus came to get rid of the law. Some say that the law no longer has any force for us as Christians, that it's finished now in the new covenant. Is that true? Well, listen to what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5. Do not think, He says to His detractors, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's the law of Moses then in its entirety. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. I haven't come to get rid of the law but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, that's just about the strongest connection that you can have between our Savior and the law of God. The Lord Jesus is not negative about the law of Moses, nor is He neutral toward the law as if, well, you know, the law's okay, you can can sort of take it if you want. No, no, He's focused on keeping the law. He's focused on promoting the law on bringing the law to its full intent and purpose. After all, the law is His own law, right? We're going to sing that from hymn 16, O come, O come, thou Lord of might. And that's a reference to Emmanuel, which is to say the Lord Jesus, Who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe? The hymn is telling us that Christ was on the mountain. Not just the Father, not just the Spirit, but also the Lord Jesus. He's the Lord of might. He was on the mountain speaking to the people. That's his law. So when God the Son comes to earth and starts to live as a man, He could no more contradict the law than His Father could. It's His law. So Christ has said, I have come to keep the law in its entirety, which He did. We have to keep that in mind as we take a closer look now at the ceremonial law with what Hebrews calls its shadows, symbols. In chapter 8, verse 5, you you might want to have your Bibles handy. We'll just refer to a few verses in chapter 8. They're kind of a couple of dense chapters, so helpful to look at it for yourself. Chapter 8, verse 5. The author points us in this direction when he says, they serve, and that's the the priests, and all the offerings, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that means the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So, on Mount Sinai, God gave to Moses a blueprint for the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, along with many instructions concerning the ministry that the priests would do at the tabernacle. And then he says, the writer says that the tabernacle and its ministry was a copy. The blueprint was not original. It was a copy. A copy of what? Of something that already existed in heaven, he says. Namely, God's heavenly home or palace, His temple up above. The tabernacle, you see, was to be God's palace or home on the earth. It was to be a symbolic replica of God's dwelling place in heaven. The tabernacle was not itself the glorious reality of God's palace, but it was a shadow That's how the author is using that word, a silhouette of God's throne room, a a rough sketch, you might say, a small foretaste of the glory that awaited the people when they would eventually get to heaven above. And you see, brothers and sisters, that's why all these ceremonies and symbols and shadows of God's law, the law of Moses, the ceremonial law, That's why they lead us to know Jesus Christ, because Christ Himself is Emmanuel, God with us. Colossians 2 says it quite plainly, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We know and and confess what will sing it in the Apostles' Creed, the Son of God came down from heaven. He entered the womb of Mary, became conceived there by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He then literally, as John writes in his gospel, He tabernacled. That's the key word there, linking His work to the work of the tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Jesus in John 2 even calls Himself the temple of God. When he said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. The ancient temple, tabernacle, was a sketch, a symbol, a shadow of what? Of God dwelling with men. Well, when the Lord Jesus came, when he arrived on earth, there you have the real McCoy. God, the Son of God, dwelling in human flesh. All those symbols, all those shadows were fulfilled in that moment. They were showing different aspects of God's plan to to live among His people. But when the times were full, God came to earth in person, in the flesh, to live with His people. And to this very day, the Lord Jesus does continue to live with His people through the presence of His Holy Spirit. Right? He poured out His Spirit upon the church, upon us. As spirit-filled Christians, we are now looking forward to the full climax of God's saving work when God will come to live in person on the new earth with His purified people. Where there will be, says Revelation 21, no more temple. No temple is required because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will dwell with us personally and fully in glory. So when you are busy reading in Exodus and Leviticus and parts of Numbers about all these ceremonies and all these symbols, don't get despondent about, hey, what does all this stuff have to do with me? No, look for what they're teaching you about Jesus. That's God's sketchbook. He's sketching out in all those ceremonies some aspect of the person of Christ or His work or both. And and it's going to take some work, okay, to look at the sketches and get something out of it and to learn the lessons, but it's, it's going to pay off those lessons. Just like when you look only at somebody's shadow. If you see somebody's shadow on the wall and you haven't seen the person, it's not quite so clear who you might be looking at. And yet the shadows, in their own way, can bring certain aspects into sharp relief. If somebody turns sideways, you can see certain profiles. Okay, and I see exactly who that is now. I see something clear about that individual. Well, that's how the Lord designed it with these ceremonies and symbols of the law. They teach us about Christ. They teach us about the need for a Savior, about what the Savior would come to do when He would come, about His person, about His task of bringing man into communion and peace with God. It's all about Christ and His saving work. That's why, for instance, we have in, in the laws of Moses graphic pictures of the ugliness of sin in all those detailed laws of clean and unclean. In Leviticus in those skin diseases of leprosy right like Leviticus 13 and 14 kind of hard to read sometimes about these the, the things that are happening in a person's skin and the discoloration and the oozing and so forth well those are pictures those are sketches showing our own sin and the need for the Savior and all those other laws of unclean They were showing no unclean person could enter the tabernacle. No unclean animal could be eaten by God's holy people. What's the lesson? Sin has to be removed from God's people before they could enter near into the presence of the Almighty. That's also what the sacrament of circumcision shows. The bloody removal of the foreskin was a symbol of the need for the removal of our sinful nature also by a bloody sacrifice to come and that's what was fulfilled in the suffering and death of the lord jesus in his bloody sacrifice with christ our sinful natures have been crucified and put to death and that's the reason why why marty and shauna are under no obligation to have little eddie here circumcised baptized yes because that's the command of Christ. The shadow of circumcision has disappeared from use because the reality of Christ and His cross has come, and Christ now commands that believers and their children be baptized. We don't need a bloody rite anymore. We don't need a bloody and painful sacrament because Jesus shed His blood, and Jesus experienced all the pain of suffering God's wrath for us. And so in the new covenant, He commands us and our children to be symbolically washed in the blood of the sacrament of baptism. This sacrament of baptism, it's not a shadow. It's not a shadow of things to come. It's a reflection of something that has already arrived and whose effect remains permanent with us forever. It's the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ in which all our sins have been paid forever. And as dad and mom, Marty and Shauna, make sure you tell your boy that. What's happening here today when he's older, you tell him what baptism means for him. That's what the Belgic means when it says Yet their truth and substance remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. So, on the one hand, these symbols, shadows, ceremonies, they cease to be practiced, used, after Christ has come. After all, if for a time all you could see is a person's shadow on the wall, but Then suddenly that person steps into view. You no longer keep looking at the shadow, you you look at the person, You, you deal with the person, right? Well, the shadow that Hebrews is talking about in our confession was Christ's shadow. So now that Christ has come into full view, we have the reality no longer just a rough sketch. We no longer need to exercise or practice the whole system of symbols and ceremonies. That was meant to teach us, to make us ready for the arrival of Christ. Christ has fulfilled the tabernacle system. He's fulfilled every sacrifice. He's fulfilled all the ceremonies. And so we turn our attention to Him directly. We worship and serve and honor Him in spirit and in truth, not in shadow, but in truth. That's why the apostles and the Christians of the New Testament era, they moved away from temple worship. They moved away from the priesthood and the sacrifices. Those things were not rejected as something unchristian, but precisely because those things had all along pointed to Christ, who the apostles and the Christians knew had come and had completed the task that those things were pointing to, they realized they no longer needed to be used. They had served their primary purpose. And that's one of the problems, for example, with the Roman Catholic Church. It wants to hang on to many of the Old Testament symbols and ceremonies and and continue to practice them. You probably know that in the Roman Church you have priests, you have an altar at the front. What do you do on an altar? You sacrifice on an altar. And you have a sanctuary, they call it. A holy space. You come into a holy space. All very Old Testament like. But a faithful Christian church will not have a priesthood, but a simple minister who preaches the gospel. And it won't have an altar, but it will have a Lord's table up front. And it won't have a sanctuary. I know we sometimes call it a sanctuary but that we really should throw that language out eh this is not a sanctuary this is just a worship hall call it an auditorium worship hall is the place where we gather to worship but it's not a sanctuary it's not a holy space you're a holy people the space is not holy we could be meeting in a barn be just as fine Rome has rituals and rosaries but the Bible calls for faith and prayer without Superstition. Rome has pictures and paintings all down their walls to teach the people, very much like the tabernacle and the temple, we're covered with symbols. But the Bible calls for the pure preaching of the word. We're not under the old covenant. We don't make use of the shadows. The shadows we set them to the side. But on the other hand, brothers and sisters, we don't throw out their truth and substance because those shadows all along were revealing Christ. They were pointing forward to Christ. So we can still learn from them now. We can look back. That is still revelation of God concerning the Son of God and our own sinfulness. So in the light of the New Testament, we can look back to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers And we can see those older symbols and we can have greater clarity about them. And we say, okay, I understand better now what what that was about. We gain a deeper insight into our Savior and into ourselves and our need for salvation. We saw a little bit of that this morning with the incense cloud. And is that not a great blessing for our faith and for our walk with the Lord? These ceremonial laws, they lead us to know. Our Savior better while the moral law leads us in following Christ those those two need to be kept distinct that sometimes is a mistake people make they lump together the ceremonial laws and the moral laws and they say of both of them both are obsolete and in doing that they point to a passage like Romans 8 which we read, Romans 8, verse 13, which calls the Old Covenant obsolete, soon to disappear. And when they read verse 13, they conclude that as the Old Covenant faded away, so did all the ceremonies fade away and all the commandments, including the Ten Commandments. That's why, for example, in, in you find very few Baptist churches or Anabaptists, that's mennonite churches or pentecostal churches or general community churches you find very very few of them that read or teach or mention or promote the ten commandments they're silent on the ten commandments because they believe they are passe they belong to the old covenant And so you find many who confess the name of Christ, but do not know the commands, the Ten Commandments. But is that what Hebrews 8 is really teaching? There's no question that this whole section of Hebrews is about the symbols and ceremonies of the law that they cease to be practiced at the arrival of Christ. But look at what he writes in verse 10, chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws where? Into the trash can. Listen. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write my laws on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's not getting rid of the laws. I will put my laws into their minds. What laws is he referring to? Well, that's the very same laws that he had once commanded Israelite parents in Deuteronomy 6, for those laws to be upon their hearts, for the, for the people to love the Lord their God with all their hearts and let these commandments be upon your hearts and teach them to your children so that they're on your children's hearts. Deuteronomy 6, 4-6. through 6, The moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and it continues to have value and pertinence and relevance for the new covenant. And why would God make this promise and, and, and make such a big deal out of it in, already in, in Jeremiah, where this quotation is from? Why would He announce it here in Hebrews as the, the reality of the new covenant? If God had already commanded in Moses' days that His people take His law into their hearts, why now single it out as an important matter? What's the big issue that He's dealing with? Well, the answer is in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, he finds fault with them, meaning the people. That was the problem that needed solving. wasn't the law. Israel's great problem was that they couldn't keep the law. That's also our great problem. God's laws have always been perfect. They come from the perfect lawgiver. Yet the people that he gave the laws to were corrupt, right? Their hearts were impure. They could not keep the covenant law. The whole Old Testament history is a history of the failure of Israel to keep God's covenant law. And so he comes through Jeremiah with a promise. I'm going to do something in the latter days. I'm going to inaugurate a new covenant in the blood of my son. And when my son sends out his spirit, he's going to take my good law and he's going to write it on the hearts of my people, not just on stone and put in the ark. He's going to write it on their hearts so they can keep it. The problem was never with God's requirements, never with those Ten Commandments. The law of God has always been something whole and perfect, as we sang from Psalm 19. It has always revived the soul. God's statutes are things of beauty. Think of the longest song of praise in the whole Bible, Psalm 119. Longest by a a mile and a half. And every stanza of that psalm sings the praises of God's law. The Holy Spirit gave us that song. And all the others, of course, David and God's people, they loved God's law. They meditate on it day and night. Think of Psalm 1. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 is in the same line when he says, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. The Ten Commandments have always been righteous and holy and honorable and good and flawless. The eternal guide to live as God's people, holy people. The problem was that people couldn't keep them. Until Christ and the coming of a Spirit. That's why the Ten Commandments remain fully in force as God's will for us today. The Belgic p- picks up on that too in the very last part of 25. In the meantime, we still use the testimonies taken from the law and the prophets both to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel and to order our life in all honesty according to God's will and to His glory. The law orders our life. It it, it regulates, or you could say it guides our lives so that we follow Christ the way He wants us to follow Him according to His own footsteps because Christ Himself only lives in accordance with God's will. Would it make sense for the Son of God to come to earth and obey every one of God's laws all the commands of, the, of the, the moral law, and then turn around and tell us, His people, look, you don't have to worry about the law. You don't have to keep any of these commands. Just do whatever you like. Go ahead and sin, because sin is breaking the law. That would be insane, wouldn't it? The purpose of Christ in coming is to set us free from sin, To make us live in agreement again with God's law. The law shows us the pathway of that freedom. So, brothers and sisters, embrace the law, the the Ten Commandments. Embrace also the, the symbols and the ceremonies and the shadows for what they teach us about Christ. And then embrace and love the Ten Commandments for what they teach us about following after Christ. The Spirit is writing them on our hearts. If we love the Lord, how can we not love the law of the Lord? As we sang it from Psalm 119, make this our prayer. Direct me in the path of your commands, for I delight in them as my possession. I delight. Let us delight in God's law. Amen. Mm -hmm.